Today's show is sponsored by Malwarebytes, modern cybersecurity that eliminates the online threats traditional security software misses. Get with the times. Get Malwarebytes for business. Learn more at Malwarebytes.com. That's Malware, B-Y-T-E-S, dot com. Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, April 10th. In today's news, President Trump wants to reopen most of the country next month. America has entered a depression. The challenge now is making it short-lived. And with Holy Week hushed by the pandemic, the Pope does social distancing his own way. But first, the big idea. Hospitals across our country have deferred or canceled non-urgent surgeries to free up bed space and equipment for coronavirus patients. But that triage maneuver cut off a main source of income, causing huge losses that have forced many hospitals to let go of healthcare workers as they struggle under the weight of the surge in cases. Hospital executives and analysts emphasize that not all the furloughed or fired workers are directly involved in treating COVID-19 patients, Others say the furloughs have helped reduce the number of people in hospitals, thereby slowing the spread of the virus. But the absences have put a strain on doctors, nurses, and other frontline healthcare workers that has already stretched some systems to the breaking point. Remaining frontline workers face longer hours, and some have seen their pay cut and benefits reduced. For hospitals that were already in bad financial shape before the outbreak, the loss of income has raised doubts about their ability to keep treating patients. In Michigan, there are reports of patients dying of the coronavirus in hallways as hospitals run out of beds and body bags and staffers who have been sidelined by the contagion. The Post has assembled data to analyze the availability of the critical care resources needed to treat severely ill patients who require extended hospitalizations. We conducted a stress test of sorts on available resources, and it revealed a scary picture of a patchwork with shortcomings in many rural cities and towns where the full force of the virus is yet to hit and where people aren't following social distancing orders as much as they are in the cities. For now, New York continues to be the front line in the invisible enemy's attack on our country. New York City now has 88,000 confirmed cases, including 22,000 hospitalizations and 4,800 deaths. At a base down the road from Niagara Falls, a specialized unit from the New York Air National Guard spent years preparing for one of our military's grimmest missions, finding and recovering the bodies of those killed in a chemical attack, natural disaster, or other mass tragedy. But when their deployment order arrived, they were sent to do a job their practice sessions did not foresee. New York City's medical examiners, who pick up the bodies of those who die unattended at home by a physician or in unexplained circumstances, have been completely overwhelmed. So the guardsmen are carrying body after body out of New York City homes and apartment buildings, in some cases winding 250 or 300-pound bodies down narrow staircases of walk-ups without an elevator. They were retrieving as many as 150 bodies a day this way, and few of them are being included in the official death toll because they're not confirmed cases, even though it was clearly the coronavirus that took them. Frank Gabrin, a New York physician, became the first American ER doctor to die from the coronavirus yesterday. I have to admit, he wrote on Facebook as the virus began to spread, I'm having some anxiety. He was 60. 
Tasha Smith, a nurse for New York's Mount Sinai Hospital System, was fired after complaining to her boss that she was uncomfortable treating patients without proper equipment. The hospital says she was terminated because she walked off the job. Smith, who had worked there for three years, said her situation has frightened other nurses who share her fears. They're afraid to speak up, she said, because she was made an example of. Several paramedics in the Big Apple who lived through 9-11 say this is much worse because it's playing out over weeks and people are dropping in every borough. The city may soon begin burying unclaimed bodies in mass graves on Hart Island, a public cemetery. It's not just New York, of course. The virus is ripping through the Navajo Nation, killing 20 people so far on that reservation, compared with 16 in the entire state of New Mexico, which has a population 13 times larger. More statistics show how badly the African-American community is being devastated by this. And in Michigan, a 66-year-old woman named Lou Ann Dagan was one of six residents to die of the contagion at a nursing home in Cedar Springs. When her sister entered her room to recover her belongings, she discovered voice recordings on her Echo device. Lou Ann had pleaded with Alexa as her condition deteriorated. How do I get help? She asked in one recording. How do I get the police? She asked in another. The help she needed never came. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, behind closed doors, President Trump has sought a strategy for resuming business activity nationwide by May 1st. In phone calls with outside advisors, Trump has even floated trying to reopen much of the country before the end of this month, when the current federal recommendations to avoid social gatherings and work from home expire. Trump regularly looks at the unemployment numbers and the stock market numbers and complains that they're hurting his presidency and re-election prospects. People inside the White House tell us that the president asks staff every day, when can we reopen? The way a kid in the backseat of a car asks, are we there yet? There have already been vigorous debates internally with public health experts and presidential advisors warning against reopening too soon, while key members of the president's economic team and some conservatives in the vice president's orbit push for a quick return to normality as if normality is possible. Among those pushing hardest to reopen the economy is Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff and a top advisor to Trump who previously ran the Koch brothers political network. Short has argued there will be fewer deaths than the models show and that the country has already overreacted. Tony Fauci, the nation's top expert on infectious diseases, said at last night's briefing that some places might reopen sooner than others and that hard-hit New York will not or should not loosen its restrictions until there's a very steep decline in infection. He said it's not going to be one-size-fits-all. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said hospitalizations and intensive care admissions in his state have fallen incrementally, suggesting progress, but he stressed that he does not know when New Yorkers will be able to begin a return to their previous lives. We're not going to go from red to green, is how he put it. We're going to go from red to yellow. History, as it so often does, is at risk of repeating itself. A 2007 study funded by the CDC examined the fate of several U.S. cities after they eased restrictions too soon during the 1918 influenza pandemic. Those cities believed they were on the other side of the peak, too, and like today, had residents and business leaders worried about the economy. Once those cities lifted the restrictions, however, 
Their trajectory soon turned into a double-humped curve with two peaks instead of one, and in many cases, the second outbreak was far deadlier than the first. And states where governors stepped up and made hard decisions early are being rewarded. Consider Ohio. With about 5,100 cases, Ohio has fewer than a third the number of people with the coronavirus as three comparably sized states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, that didn't act as soon as Governor Mike DeWine, the Republican, did in Columbus. Ohio also has just a small fraction of the deaths reported in those states. Another red flag, though, is that South Korea's CDC is warning that the coronavirus is reactivating in cured patients. South Korea has found 50 patients classified as having been cured who then tested positive again. Rather than being infected separately, the virus may have been reactivated inside these people given that they tested positive shortly after being released from quarantine. A patient is deemed fully recovered when two tests conducted within a 24-hour interval show negative results. Fear of reinfection is also growing in China after reports that some have tested positive again there and even died from the disease after supposedly recovering and leaving the hospital. Some believe this problem may be the result of inconsistencies with test results. Still, it's something to keep in mind as we debate reopening the country. Number two, more than 17 million of our fellow Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the past four weeks. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said yesterday that the U.S. economy is in an emergency and is deteriorating with alarming speed. His remarks came shortly after the central bank unveiled another $2 trillion in new loans to keep the economy solvent. The nation has not experienced this magnitude of layoffs and economic contraction since the Great Depression, and recovery is unlikely to be swift. Trump and Congress are racing to pass more money for relief, but they failed to strike a deal yesterday on the details. Meanwhile, the $2 trillion package Congress did approve last month is barely starting to get out as states and federal agencies that have been gutted for years struggle to process millions of applications for aid from small businesses and the newly jobless. Last week, 6.6 million Americans applied for unemployment, a staggering number that would have been unthinkable just weeks ago. J.P. Morgan predicts the unemployment rate will hit 20% and the economy will shrink by 40% in the second quarter, which runs from April through June. While such losses are deep and astounding, some economists hope they're unlikely to be long-lasting. That's why stocks continued to rally yesterday despite the terrible jobs numbers, with the Dow gaining 286 points. Investors also applauded the Fed's latest aid. Still, the gravity of one in 10 Americans suddenly out of work is hitting families and communities across our country. Several cities are beginning to experience modern-day bread lines with cars stretching over a mile as people wait to visit food banks so they can feed themselves and their kids. We're seeing bread lines from San Diego to Pittsburgh and Orlando to Cleveland. It's heart-wrenching. Number three. The coronavirus has forced Pope Francis to scrap his public appearances and postpone his first overseas trip of the year to Malta. He now recites his Sunday sermons not from a window overlooking St. Peter's Square, but from a Vatican library. This weekend, he'll conduct Easter service largely via live stream. But as Francis guides the global Catholic Church through the pandemic, he's made it clear he has no interest in full-on papal social distancing. He's continuing to hold in-person meetings sometimes sitting knee-to-knee with guests. He eschews wearing a mask, and he's tried to maintain a near-normal daily schedule even as the virus has reached closer. 
with one positive case discovered in Santa Marta, the residence hall where he lives. According to his publicly released schedule, Francis has met with more than 80 people since the beginning of last month. Now, among world leaders, the 83-year-old, who's already missing part of a lung from an earlier health scare, has faced one of the more difficult, delicate calculations about how to pull back. And he's been grousing in recent weeks about feeling, in his word, caged. And his sociable, off-the-cuff personal style runs counter to the best guidance about how to slow the spread. Vatican insiders say the Pope has reduced his interactions, but is trying to appear present and not self-concerned during this dark period of global grief and mounting social tensions. Insiders also suggest that the Pope is trying to set an example to priests around the world of how to find creative ways to stay involved, even as churches are shuttered. Still, a lot of people are panicking that the pontiff is taking too many chances. One Vatican official agreed to talk with us on the condition of anonymity because he is not allowed to publicly criticize the Pope. This person said, let's hope he doesn't catch it, because can you imagine what a conclave would look like in a time of pandemic? He said it would look like a sci-fi novel. And then he switched over to Latin. Quad Deus Avertat, he said. For those who never studied, that means God forbid. And that's the Daily 202 for Friday, April 10th. I've been hearing from a lot of you lately about how much you appreciate the show. That means the world to me. Thank you. The best way podcasts grow is by word of mouth. So if this show means something to you, tell a friend. As always, our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick and our music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. Today's show is sponsored by Malwarebytes, modern cybersecurity that eliminates the online threats traditional security software misses. Get with the times. Get Malwarebytes for business. Learn more at Malwarebytes.com. That's Malware, B-Y-T-E-S, dot com.